Fuck pain. Fuck heartbreak. I'm still in love with life. Headquarters of the future capital of the free thinking state of America known as Los Angeles. This is the Drunken Dows Podcast. Tonight, it's interview time again as author Lady Matthew joins us to discuss her new novel, The Musician's Secret, The Joy of Writing Fiction, Poppy Liqueur, Doodoos, as well as her fascinating journey from Ethiopia to Jamaica to France to LA where she also operates the Green Bar Craft Distillery, L.A.'s first distillery since Prohibition. I'm sure the drunken Dallas Special Reserve can't be far behind. And now, asking you all to spread the words that corporations are not persons, I'm Rich Evers. And my partner in crime, the savage philosopher and middle finger of the gods, Daniele Bolelli. As we invite you to lower the lights, batten down the hatches, and prepare to open your mind. For the Drunken Dows Podcast begins now. Welcome back, everybody. Episode 73 of the Drunken Dows Podcast. That's it. Beginning of year four, everybody. Woo! We kick us. There you are. Daniele Bolelli is here with me. I cannot believe time flies. Indeed. There's no question about it. Three years down, ready for year number four. And we've had a bunch of you along the way for the whole ride, and a oh, bunch yeah. of you joining on all the time, and just can't say thank you enough for hanging out with us. Absolutely. Quick thank you to Datsusara with the greatest hemp gear on the planet. Talking about um, being with us from the beginning. Yep, literally. Uh, very literally from in one form or another from episode one. And um, so, again, you know, for you guys, if you have been through the drill, you know how it works. Check out the episode notes for discount codes if you want to order any of their products. A very quick thank you to our sponsor, Datsusara, which, again, from mainly backpacks, uh, uh, T-shirts, hoodies, everything hemp-made. The Indiana Jones satchel is on its way. Yeah, that's coming up. There's great product. Check the website. You get a discount if you order through us. Uh, Please check them out. Onnit.com, human optimization site. The whole idea behind Onnit is kind of cool. Is the Aubrey Marcus started figuring out what products would I want to use, what pro, and that's why Onnit does not have a single specific. They are not a supplement company per se, because yeah, they make a bunch of things that you take. There's that, but then they also make workout gear. They also have a bunch of food. So it's like, wait, what is this site exactly? And the whole point is, from a guy like Aubrey figuring out. What products would I want to use in my life that are kind of cool, that are kind of cutting edge, there are sort of some things that maybe not everybody is uh, hip to yet, but they are kind of either super healthy or they help out, you know, working out in different type of ways. Or And he just built a company on that idea, which is not a bad idea at all. And people responded. So again, same story. If you want to check out the whole Onnit catalog, use our discount code there in the episode notes. Thank you very much. And of course, thank you to Shore Design with the funkiest, coolest t-shirts in the world, plus pants now, plus jewelry, plus, you know, a lot of hippie heaven opened up and the Shore Design fell out. And that's what, uh, what you fell, what you got from it. I've had a lot of people comment on the cool hemp designs. Yeah, no, there's, uh, there's so much good. And again, it, the beauty of it is three sponsors, all of them awesome people, all of them uh, all of them great products, and it's, uh, it's a good gig. 
So, having said that, um, let's Kiva. get... Kiva, $30,000. Jesus Christ. That's you guys. And not a lot of you, I'll have you know. But the, ones the 157 of you who've joined in have done some amazing stuff. So go ahead and get your $25 out and join the rest of us so we can get to 50000 by Christmas. It would be awesome. And you're helping out folks around the world or in your own community. It's your choice. Join us, Kiva.org. We'll send you an invite, and you'll be on your way to helping out some fine folks. And it'll make you feel like a fine citizen of planet Earth. And not some cruddy piece of person that doesn't care about anybody. Some sort of Ogilgarg social, just bad person. That guy, yeah, of course. That Yucky one. person. Okay, we're going to... I have a couple of things, actually, I want to mention. But for the sake of not killing you guys with too long of an introduction, I'm going to bring them up at the end. So please stay tuned at the end of the episode. A couple of things I want to bring up. Some big announcements, some medium announcements some small ones the whole range so please stick around at the end of the episode interview time Litty Matthew coming up let's get ready to roll what's in that bottle something good and that gets you drunk Ready to roll. Our guest today, my friend Litty Matthew. Litty, welcome to the Drunken Taoist. Thank you. I come pre-drunk. Yeah, uh, speaking, well, I guess uh, I had a whole plan. We just finished like seven seconds ago of me saying, oh, I want to talk about the book you wrote first. Then we get into the whole alcohol thing. Switch. <laughs> Let's Yay. start with the booze. Since we, <laughs> you know, the Drunken Taoist and you pra- uh, you come up uh, properly lubricated. The... Um, What's your day job? Do tell. I'm a forensic alcohol maker. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I run LA's first distillery since Prohibition, so I make liquor. That's really like first distillery since Prohibition. It's been a long time. That's crazy. Why Uh, does nobody do it? Oh, maybe I should say first legal distillery in sure. LA. <laughs> that helps. Oh, yeah, right. So the that's that's a shout out to the people who are making this in their backyard. Please don't blow yourselves up. Um, well, why is it so difficult in LA to have a distillery? I think it's because it you know, you don't have all the resources that you need, um, mm-hmm. you know, like... Glass. Like liquor stores. There's not nearly <laughs> enough liquor stores in LA. Yeah, clearly we need more. <laughs> no, but like glass, you know, like bottles and things like that. Um, it's also really tough to have, you know, tough to have a, um, a business in terms of regulate regulations. Mm-hmm. LA County is extremely tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that doesn't make it easy on you. I can not see why all. people would be like, eh, screw it. So yeah. how did it happen? Because it's not like what you did your whole life. Uh, you were doing very different things before. How did you guys end up in... Uh... Oh, so my husband, Melkon um, Kozrovian, he's the other partner in the liquor business. Um, it's a weird thing. We met on the first day of graduate school at USC. So this is what higher education leads you to. Right. <laughs> Making booze in your bathtub <laughs> exactly, and then uh, yeah. moving on to... Exactly. But his side of the family, they're Armenian, uh-huh. and they drink spirits with their meals. So when we were being introduced to the larger friends and family circle, um, the, the natural way it would um, unfold is there's a nice big uh, table full of delicious food. Um, an elder would get up and say a toast, and then uh, you would all knock back some horrible 
spirit that would probably put hair on my chest. Um, so since I didn't want that, I would never, I'd wrinkle my nose and put it down. It was usually, you know, very, it's, it's like nail polish remover cut with uh, jet fuel. It was right. terrible. That kind of, the kind of stuff that they use to clean industrial machinery and, <laughs> yes. And a, it's not just an industrial cleaner, it's also a handy beverage. Like it's, <laughs> that's always lovely. <laughs> Um, so, so I would put it down and not drink it. And of course, you know the you know the people would the cousins would look at me like, "Ooh, putting on airs, are you?" So Melcom thought, "Okay, well, I'm going to make something that would appeal to her wine lover's palate." I'm a cooking school dropout. Just had come back from France at that point. So he started to make these really beautiful infusions, just in a jar with regular liquor, but interesting fruits and vegetables and herbs and spices and he decanted whatever turned out that was good because there were some that were terrible <laughs> and slap a beautiful label on it would go to these family events mm-hmm. turned out i wasn't the only fan the cousins would steal the bottles nice and you know pretty soon it just kind of went out of control and now we make liquor it's been more than 10 years wow yeah because i remember actually when you guys were started just you know you make your homemade bottles it was just experimenting the bathtub pretty much that's yeah that's, that's when that's you had right. to sign the thing um, in case you went blind if <laughs> oh yeah no sorry that was the illegal part so we can get into that but and eventually you graduated to going full-blown uh yeah that's right. LA's first distillery. Not a bad gig, yeah, I would say. It's not bad at all. Um, before so we switch to uh, getting into your book, let's just throw out there for people. Uh, what's the website of your company? The Oh, yes. So the where we make liquor, it's called Green Bar Craft Distillery, and the website is greenbar.biz, B-I-Z. Greenbar.biz. Mm-hmm. And uh, what kind of stuff do you guys make? What are your favorite things? Wow, we make the largest portfolio of organic spirits. So um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I got to ask. What? Organic spirits, please do tell. <laughs> you know, generally speaking, the crowd that's into the organic, I want it healthy and stuff, is not the crowd that's down in like 12 shots in a row. So oh, yeah. It is? No, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Okay, so no, actually we do it for flavor. Okay. Um, I see Rich is um, having a sip. Okay, I did bring some, you know, refreshments. Nice. Um, we do, we choose organic ingredients for the flavor that they give. We just get a lot more zing out of the stuff that we use. But along the way, of course, we, uh, when, when, we when we listen to what our growers and farmers were saying, you know, it, it does save... Um, um, farmland, it, it does clean, it, you know, leave the water cleaner. Uh, all of those were important to them, so it's now important to as well. That makes sense. So in that sense, the organic part is uh, for the consumer is flavor that mm-hmm. it's very right. different from the kind of commercially produced uh, crap sprayed with all sort of nasty shit. Exactly. And um, and also in terms of ethics, I guess you leave behind the better soil as opposed to if you, that makes sense. Okay, so it's a two-way street. It's, uh, I like it. I dig it. Because I, I was usually puzzled. Yes. I was going to say, but you wouldn't buy it if it didn't taste great. So yeah. that's what's important for us is it has to be really tasty. So what are we throwing down, Rich and I? We have. Uh, <laughs> I, I hear it doesn't taste anything like insecticides. So I don't know. Let's try. It's not we what we had in Nashville. Grand Poppy Bitter Liqueur. The Grand Poppy. Yes. Poppy. Now yeah. we're talking. Oh, no, no. That See kind of later, poppy. Dorothy. I was going to say, that kind of poppy is only the distillery reserve. 
Uh, okay, no, please don't arrest me. Damn, it does have flavor. That's a bit sweet. Yeah, it's sweet and bitter like an Amaro, like a Campari yeah. or Aperol. And so, you know, normally you would drink this as a digestive before your meal, after your meal, during, during your, your meal. meal. <laughs> this is Later before the meal. On the way home. <laughs> yeah. We are recording prior to, so yeah, I can see the, I can see the logic oh, to that. That's delicious. Nice. Oh, thank you. So the poppy is actually our state flower. It's also what um, makes it bitter. Mm-hmm. Like my soul. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it is. Huh? Bitter like your soul. You guys should have a label on it with your picture <laughs> yeah. and it's like... Just looking grumpy. Yeah. Bitter like Litty soul. <laughs> yeah. What else do you guys make? I remember tasting, um, mainly a while back, I haven't in a while tried your stuff, but I remember tasting some really wild, creative, some are mm. freaking awesome. There were vodkas, there were... Yeah, so we make vodkas, we make gin, we make um, rums, uh, uh, liqueurs, uh, bitters, which are like, you know, salt and pepper for your cocktail. Mm -hmm. um, honestly, largest portfolio of organic spirits. So, and tequila, which uh, actually Melcon is in Mexico making tequila for us now. Nice. Mm -hmm. Making tequila at this very moment. Is yeah. it agave style or something different? Oh, no, with agave cooked, or, you know, it's old fashioned, like in a clay oven for three days. And nice. Then, mm -hmm, really tasty. Let's talk about rum for a minute. Oh, yes. We've got some beautiful rums that we make. Do you spice them in fancy ways? Or you... We do. There's a spiced rum and we thought, oh, let's do something innovative. Let's really put, let's put spices in it. That was the innovation because usually when you have, um, you know, when spice rums usually just have fake vanilla and once in a while some cinnamon, maybe some wood chips. Um, so the one that we make has got, it's called Crusoe, Crusoe as in Robinson Crusoe. Um, and it's, uh, the spice drum has um, cloves, cinnamon, nutmeg, um, fresh orange zest, just a bunch of really delicious things. Just waiting for my Mai Tai. Yes. Oh, fabulous. Yeah, mai man. Tai. I'm looking at the website right now. We got organic vodka, organic gin, organic tequila, slow hand organic whiskey, organic rum, <laughs> organic liqueurs, or this one that we're drinking, the mm -hmm. poppy liqueur. The, Jesus, you have quite a range. If I may ask for one more, a limoncello, I could cry. <laughs> Please add it to the list. I may have to make a drunken Taoist special reserve. I oh. dig that. that <laughs> you know, there's already me... a strain of weed grown oh. in, in Maine. Wow, yeah. well, then. a drunken Taoist. But so it, was it Maine? Joined, I think it was. Somewhere in the east. You can't disclose his location right now. He's no. not a free man like no. some of us in the world. Of course. Mm. So, yeah, but by all means, a limoncello, that would be the next step. Since yeah, we're man. lucky enough to have a liquor expert here, I got to ask, what is this deal with flavoring everything all of a sudden? I mean, the vodka sort of made sense till it went crazy. You don't need birthday cake flavored vodka. People are losing their minds. But now that they're touching the Jack Daniels mm. and something's mm. got cinnamon in it now and like Jim Bean cinnamon and Jack Daniels honey and... Come on, folks. Right. So you're, it seems to me you're more of like a basics guy, huh? Well, I think the whole flavor thing is just a trick to make us think we actually have some kind of choice in this existence. Oh, wow. Okay. Jesus. That Heavy. Is <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a trick. You know, why is it we have two political parties but 71 kinds of coffee? <laughs> Give it, I see. Damn. I'm fired up. I was at the Bernie Sanders rally yesterday, y'all, and watch out. Oh, wow. How was that? How it was insane. Oh. They packed the L.A. Uh, sports arena. There were 10,000 people outside they couldn't get in. Wow. The biggest crowd Hillary's had so far is 4,700 people. Hmm. And, of course, Trump puts $50 bills on the seats for people to shop. 
This, by the way, of course, may or may not air by the time the election is over. There's already <laughs> two presidents down the road. Who right. knows? Everybody knows they're in the time machine. Yeah, exactly. As, oh, yeah. as we always tell you, yeah. we hadn't even heard about Pakistan bombing India yet. So. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So, beside making awesome booze and being the legal version of Al Capone. Yeah, that's what, the best um, part. Sherry, watch with the hooch. <laughs> and so, by the way, I'm going to put a link in the episode notes to the green bar dot biz. Dot biz. Mm-hmm. Okay. That way, if you guys want to try any of Litty handmade productions, Don't mind there they do. are. And uh, <laughs> reaches down in some right now. Hey, you guys can come on a tour if you ever come visit Los Angeles. Oh, that's oh. even cooler. So... Mm-hmm. This seems dangerous. This seems yeah. along the lines of the whole concept of wine coolers in the 80s. Oh, did he they... just call my handcrafted, no. beautifully made item a wine cooler? No, that's not what I said. It's the same sort of great idea that this is delicious. Have another sip, my dear. It's not a nasty beer or a disgusting shot of whiskey. It's something very delicious that's going to get you very drunk. And who knows what might happen after that. I see. So that that an Armenian party you don't have to hide when you push away the industrial cleaner. <laughs> you can actually enjoy your alcohol. and uh, Well, this ain't no fun. battleship cleaner, that's for sure. No, this that's some fine definitely stuff. for sure. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Can I get these barnacles off or something? Dang. <laughs> mm. God, you remember so, last time we were drinking during an episode? That oh was a long time ago. It was. We haven't done that in a long time. And how many, long, this is sorry. number two lady guest ever, right? Number wow. three. Who am I forgetting? Four. Don't Come forget. on. Chris's four. wife. Five then. No. We got Casilda, Chris's wife. Four. That was a half, so. Yeah, half. She's okay. came Four and like a half then. Because we'll have uh, Shannon Lee. Lee. Yep. Yeah. Amber Lyon. That doesn't count. That was your super secret loan mission. Sorry, that was. I thought that was a guest on her podcast, and it turned out we are recording ours. Hey, we'll so do sorry. anything for an episode. You weren't there. You're right. This is a good company you got going here. The, um, Litti and the Cara Santa Maria. Uh, no. Those were the... Well, now I know why I forgot. Okay. I see. <laughs> that was the sequence. Yes. Well, I'm honored. You should be. <laughs> no, actually, you know, it's funny because it's like... It's actually really weird because uh, I've... Um, sometimes when I email guests or potential guests and we go back and forth and there are people that... Uh, I don't know why, and I'm not trying to draw any sociological conclusions from it, mm-hmm. but the number of times when getting the either no replies or weird replies or kind of like I'll touch base and they don't reply from women is like 10 times more than men. I found it so much easier. Not everybody, of course, because, mm. you know, some of the people that we mentioned or even others that we didn't have on, but it still would happen. They have been awesome. Mm-hmm. But for some weird cosmic connection, getting there have been way more problems with potential uh, female guests than potential male guests mm-hmm. no idea why don't draw conclusion i just and again it's a small sample so take it as is are either but of you stalkers that's what you know that would be <laughs> just because i'm outside your window with uh, pantyhose on my face He's and knocking thirsty. and saying hey you want to come on my podcast that doesn't mean you should <laughs> Called the cops. Or uh, there, there's always the like... Duncan theory that the first episode, the pilot episode, where somebody would naturally go check out. Oh yeah, well, probably of terrifies a few oh, folks. I yeah, see. we yeah. generally ask you to jump in around twelve or thirteen before you yeah. get crazy and go back to when <laughs> we had no idea what was going on. Yeah, I, he was. I was dying laughing. Chatting with Duncan is always hilarious, but let's put it away. The tone of the conversation was not exactly leading to female. 
Mm, I, the I see. Yeah, he was, yeah, to say the least. Whew. Now, on that note, actually, not on that note at all, on a completely different note, but <laughs> the um, so day job, you have become the legal Al Capone of LA. That's right. Hopefully, a little bit better looking. That's a good start. Okay, that helps you. absolutely. That uh, I would say. Well, but good Al, you know, you don't find uh, <laughs> the fascination of this rough-looking. Uh, no, okay. <laughs> The but that's not why we're here today. Um, do tell the musician secret, your first book. How did it happen? How, why, if, when, what, all of it. Is it a vegetable or a mineral? Right, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, no, but- yeah, you just publish a book, which I just read. I was uh, I was up in Big Bear by a lake, Ooh. checking it out and reading it, and I had a blast. You know, it's actually. I'm I'm gonna go on a minor tangent on my own experience of the book first, and then I'll turn the mic on to you. It's interesting because when to me, I really don't read a whole lot of fiction. I tend to read so much nonfiction because I'm interested, or I pick up some good info, or it's useful for I'm preparing this is a long-standing historical podcast that led me to read ten thousand books in the that's a crazy amount of stuff. And, you know, nonfiction, it doesn't have to be awesome. Mm-hmm. It needs to be useful. It needs to be, I need to pick up something that's useful to me. It's not always a great book per se, but it can be a useful book. Fiction is not about use, right? You either enjoy it or you don't. So to me, the amount of fiction I read tend to be very little mm-hmm. because I'm either really into it and I'm like, this thing is awesome. Or if it's average, I don't want to read it. You know, it's like, fuck this. Uh, it's, that doesn't do it for me. And it's interesting because, you know, your book will not, it's not the typical, you know, there's nobody getting their head chopped off with a sword, which automatically usually would disqualify it from my reading list. It's like, you know, if nobody gets a head chopped off with a sword, I'm not going to watch it and I'm not going to read it. You know, what's the point? You know, there's just no. And yet I enjoyed it a lot, which says quite a bit about, about the whole thing. For one, I really dug your writing style. I thought that you write really well in a very witty kind of way that I would just be not in an over-the-top, like I'm trying to show you how good I'm writing, where I'm like, I don't feel like you're hitting me over the head with it, but all of a sudden I find a way you phrase something or and I'm like, wait, what did she just do there? Oh, that was awesome. You know, in a very subtle kind of way, but you deliver the punch. So, so I had a blast. You are officially the first book I read without head chopping in a long time, and I enjoyed it, actually. So that's a big plus. Um, so, yeah, my deepest compliments. Awesome. But I do tell a little bit about the genesis of this book. Yeah, okay. So th- this is interesting. Um, I think we all have the idea of telling a story in us. Mm-hmm. Anytime we say, what if? Like, what if that man reached over and uh, slapped that other man when you're sitting in a cafe? Or what if this person just fell off that bridge? Like, whenever, anytime we say that, that's the premise, right? I always fantasize about people falling <laughs> off the bridge all the time. So that's, I'm glad we're on the same page. But we all have that impulse in us, right? And so for me, it actually started back in the days when I was a journalist. Um, it was, it's probably like a decade now before the liquor company or right around that time. Um, I did a story for the Los Angeles Times, a calendar section, and it was um, an interview of the Stradivarius of the Duduk world. And the Duduk is an Armenian instrument that's like an old shepherd's flute. And so um, it happened to be a distant relative on my husband's side. And that led me to think of um, that 
to to also interview the most famous duduk player okay so i now i've got to like uh, even go back further what happened is we were listening to all these hollywood movies and all of a sudden in the score we'd hear this really haunting sound yep. this this wailing sort of flute it was almost like the human voice without language and my husband melkon he turned to me and he said hey hey wait a second that's the duduk that's an armenian instrument and i was like no nah, get out of here what why would that be in a musical score mm -hmm. like this and so we kept hearing it more and more. I think it was Battlestar Galactica, the remake. And we would hear it and I thought, what the heck is this? So I asked my editor, can I look into this? Because is it because there's a proximity of, of an Armenian community, largest population um, outside of Yerevan, the capital um, in the US here in you know Los Angeles area? Or why is it showing up? So he signed the story to me. I interviewed these people and um, even after the story was done, I couldn't stop thinking about the sound this instrument mm -hmm. made and what, you know, that it's this way of expro expressing emotion. Yep. Um, so I thought, okay, and I kept thinking, kept, I kept thinking, and I said, what would be the hardest thing for an Armenian? Like, what would be the ultimate sin? And I just, and maybe I was thinking of that because just for myself as an outsider in the community, you sure. know, I have a different perspective. And I, I just kept unraveling that that and just just ex just examining the impulse, and that's what started the musician secret. Three different things, four things, five <laughs> things, six. No, um, first, uh, just as a uh, since people cannot see us since it's not a video podcast, mm -hmm. uh, outsider to the community. Please do tell your own ethnic background. Uh, <laughs> right. So my family is, um, uh, I'm South Indian from a state called Kerala, but mm -hmm. I was born in Africa, Ethiopia. Um, so, and I grew up in Jamaica and went to school in France. So <laughs> <laughs> let's try that again. <laughs> Kerala, South India. That's right. Born in Ethiopia. Mm hmm. Uh, went to school in Jamaica. No, grew up in Jamaica. Mm -hmm. Later went to school in France. Yes. Jesus Christ. Right. So, but that's what's great about California, Los Angeles, yeah, right? Of course. And the fact that w someone like me can meet someone like my husband in on the first day of graduate school, and make liquor after that. <laughs> <laughs> I hope my mother isn't listening. Right. Holy smokes. That's that works. So yeah. Indian woman will write a whole book about Armenian culture, mainly from a male viewpoint, which I found hilarious in a lot of ways. <laughs> so we're going to go into that as well. I'm hoping but, the Jamaican book is next. Yeah, seriously, that's next on the we list. We could go do some research, man. <laughs> Ethiopia and Jamaica, right there. Being originally... Weed-flavored awesome. coffee, man. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that... Well, that I think should come next. The, it's on my list. It's on your list. The Bang, B-H-A-N-G. Mm -hmm. It's a traditional Indian, as a mm -hmm. matter of fact, yes. Milk uh, drink, milk and um, spices. It's really delicious. I guess you have the expertise in that <laughs> department. That's good to know. It's so funny what you say about they, L.A., though. Is that, that's what I, I came to L.A. after 10 years in Nashville. Oh, yeah. And it's just, this is the spot that is the great hope for the planet. Mm -hmm. We have everybody present all religions all ethnic groups yep it is far from perfect but we managed to make it through the day <laughs> and we love eating each other's food that's so true so much mm -hmm. yeah i mean the exposure to the culture that you get from it's a great way in the door for sure i mean think about it like for example she's i was about to say from india not even from india from the whole list of like 16 <laughs> countries we just mentioned i'm from italy we both live in glendale which means we 
well, you ended up marrying into an Armenian, Armenian family. Central, yeah. mm-hmm. I have lots of Armenian friends. And it's like, and that's one of the 3,000 cultures that we interact with on a regular basis because you have the Armenian community in Glendale. And then you go down five miles and you meet your friend from a whole different thing. You're going to eat different foods, different traditions. And it's like, it's all around LA. And it's one of the things that makes it awesome. I completely agree. One of the things that kills me anytime I go anywhere else in the US and I see some beautiful places where I'm like, man, I would love to live here. This place is awesome. And then I look around and it's like, everybody has the same skin color or close to everybody. The food is the same in every restaurant. And I'm just like, fuck, I can't do this. You know? No, and once you've had a taste of it, you cannot go back. Because then you really, really notice it. I mean, I grew up in the army, as army brats, so we moved all the time. Uh And so we sort of had this whole different culture, too. I mean, you talk about people's fear of socialism. If you're an army kid, everything is paid for. Oh, yeah. You know, if you go to the dentist, you go to the same dentist that the troops go to. They line you up 40 chairs in a row, braces, you know, and and it's all very effective and everybody shares, you know, and it's sort of like a really nice way to think of society. Then you step outside of that and it's like, what the fuck is going on here? Here it is wonderfully different. Yeah, no, and that's that's the beautiful thing right there, the the exposure to all this variety, right? I mean, yeah. that's what makes LA addicting. Well, well, you can pick what you're going to be. You're going to be the people that are going to destroy antiquities and be insane in our way or the highway, or you can be the folks that want to just have a great party and everybody bring some potluck and we'll have the most incredible I may be going could. off a limb, but the latter choice seems <laughs> slightly healthier. I would hope so. Yeah. But, okay, so since I have you two erudite gentlemen so what is the bubble are we in la in a bubble or is the is the rest or is the other part of the country a bubble which is the bubble yeah well i mean of course la is the exception to the rule (laughs) so by definition that would make that the bubble but at the same time i don't know it's like it depends where it's gonna go with our world which there are many 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 questions about where it's going in the future but assuming that we can keep it sustainable and that society as we know it can continue, then it almost seems inevitable that with globalization you're going to have a elification of the planet where you see a lot more people where... I mean, hell, even just going back to Milan, I grew up in Milan not a million years ago, just... I I was born in the mid-70s, so not a million years ago, and yet growing up in the 80s, even early 90s in Mm -hmm. Milan... All I would see around me were Italian, born in Italy, white-skinned, that kind of shit. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you occasionally see the African immigrant, not that much. Mm -hmm. In the last uh, 20-some years, it's changed completely. Like, I go into the subway in Milan, and uh, ethnic Italians are maybe half, maybe, maybe 60%. It's crazy level of variety that wasn't there before. And so it's, and I see it in my own lifetime, the radical, very drastic change in how a place like Milan that used to be very like everybody you know is the same skin color kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That's not the case anymore. So I think that's going to happen more and more places as time goes by, assuming that. Well, you got to put eight and a half billion people somewhere. Exactly. And they move and travel is easier and Mm -hmm. uh, internet makes things easier too. You're not going, you know, if you try to go to another country, it's like, where the hell are you going? You know, before you had no idea what you were to expect. Now you can go on the net, find out stuff, makes it less scary. Mm Mm-hmm. The whole process. That's the whole thing. Once they've seen the lights of Paris, you can never have them back on the farm. It's just totally true. And it seems bubble-wise, 
I think the cultures, let's say maybe the Chinese or the Japanese, they seem to be very much wanting to keep everybody, they seem to want to keep their family lines in order and, and don't want any mixing or anything like oh, that. Oh, yeah, there's that as well, of so course, I think, in that, a I bunch think, of I think those are the more bubble places. Yeah. I think we are an open place. And, you know, California, if, if they start misbehaving enough, we'll just put our own fence up and... But I mean, even in LA, oh, Oregon and Washington, telling that we're doing this ourselves. Right. Let's even go. in LA, even in your book, you refer to like you know somebody dating a non-Armenian as like, whoa, I mm -hmm. don't know about that. We have oh, we have little bubbles, don't we? Of course, mm -hmm. of course, that's a given, you know. And it's in just about every community you have that sense yes. of like, what? Who are they dating? It's like, there's that initial. But you got a lot better chance of making it happen here. Oh it's yeah. Like, Night and day. One of my chances. favorite L.A. memories was about five years ago. Prince put on 21 shows in a row to keep the forum open because they couldn't afford to keep those people's jobs because yeah. there's nothing going on there. Wow. So he did 21 shows, and we went to show three. And it was that exactly what you hoped for. It was a third white. It was a third Mexican. Mm -hmm. It was a third black. And everybody was all mixed in there. And we had a fabulous time. Mm -hmm. And nobody gave anybody any strife. And right. those are the moments where that's what you, we have a choice at this point. We can either have that America mm -hmm. or we can have Hillbilly Fred's America where we're just going to sit and hate each other for the rest of right, the time. Right, 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 right. There's not a choice. I again, I would slightly lean one way. On I know. I, I make it tough. <laughs> you make it so difficult. But one of the sorry, we got sidetracked on uh, some of the stuff you're saying on your book. One that you brought up about the instrument itself, the duduk, spelled by the way for those of you guys who are keeping tab, D U D U K. Mm -hmm. Check it out. I was reading and I. You know, the name didn't tell me anything. So I'm like, what the hell is a duduk player? You know, it's like, so of course I do what every good person with a computer does. I just went in and pray to the gods of Google and they show me the light. <laughs> and so on YouTube came up, people playing the duduk. And you use the perfect word right there. You use the word haunting to describe the sound of it. That's exactly what I got in my notes right here. It's like, I have duduk beautifully haunting because mm -hmm. it's amazing i mean it's an awesome sound sad as hell right mm -hmm. i mean it's just it's not a it's not yeah it's not what you hear in jamaica let's put it that way it's not exactly you know happy reggae music type of stuff where they are all having a big party smoking weed and no this is people who have suffered played the duke it's not uh and i think you even write it in your own book it's like you need to have experienced some really hard stuff in order to play it <laughs> And at the same time, you listen to it and you're like, wow, it just absolutely, you know, so by all means, for you guys, just go on, just check on YouTube, see some of it, because uh, I really dug it. I spent a bunch of time listening to it and just the sound itself was amazing. There's some live um, duduk on my website. Um litymatthew.net mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and that was recorded at the distillery so that's mm. kind of fun to listen to it's just amazing I bet no it's I haven't checked that one out I'll, I'll listen it's mm -hmm. uh, yeah I really dug it 
I really, really dug it. What What are some of the major soundtracks? You mentioned a few. What are some of the ones that people may have heard it already? Well, um, y- you will have heard um, the Duduk. Like I said, it, once you listen to it, you'll start recognizing it because I still hear it on, on certain soundtracks. Um, it, anytime you need to convey that deep emotion without using um, language, it's often used in a really sad setting. So like you'll hear it in like um, Gladiator. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. So That's right. you'll definitely, um, uh, you'll definitely hear it. But one of the old songs, um, it's called Dele Yaman. And it's um, um, like the people who write or who have uh where there's music for the duduk it's like in the old Sayat Nova songs it's a singer but then you know there's always duduk behind it um, but Peter Gabriel he, mm-hmm. ha- he had some duduk music um, The Last Temptation of Christ is yeah, a great soundtrack yeah, 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 yeah. so um, it's definitely you know you'll definitely hear it in modern music too yep is it reeded? is there some sort of yes there is a double read uh, so that, it does have a, that it's an oboe-esque yes exactly I was like, I don't know what they are talking about. I'm going to just nod along, but I don't know. what <laughs> story of my life. Yeah. The, um, okay, so you so you start with the story. We're following the whole Duduk story for the LA Times. Um, what prompted uh, you deciding to go the fiction route, writing a book about it? Uh, well, writing a book, not just about that, because the book is not. You know, the main character right, is happens uh, to be the Duke player. The Duke player, but it's not a book about the Duke person. Yeah, um, what made me write fiction after being a journalist? Mm-hmm. It's true that at that level, when, w- when I first started, I kept telling myself, oh, I don't know how to write fiction. And then I, it made me pause for a second. I thought, hell, fiction, you just make everything up. It's, it's terrific. Yeah. <laughs> so that kind of actually made me sit down and start writing um a novel so it's just that thing that freed me like hey wait a second i can make everything up <laughs> so that's the beauty of it all <laughs> are there a couple others sitting in the in the back that were attempts that didn't go or and did you just sit down and knock this one out i actually sat and wrote this in uh, in three months wow. uh, just the first draft mm-hmm. you know then it, it went away for like years sure um and then but that distance was good because it helped me realize what it is i was trying to say mm-hmm. and once you once you know what it is your that theme you're trying to explore or like what you're trying to do for yourself, then what what you're trying to answer for yourself, then it all falls into place. Nice, nice, nice. What was the editorial process like for you? Did it hurt? <laughs> How long? I, I've got scars. Yeah. <laughs> How long did you go through from the first time you put pen to paper? Not that anybody put pen to paper anymore, but you know, right. I started typing away. Yeah. And having the book published, what was the whole, how long was the whole process? I'm going to say eight years. That's solid. That yeah. Would... And mostly, and not mostly, but of course, I got to run the liquor company. Mm-hmm. So, um, of course. you know, that. Yeah, it's take... not a full time job that it's... you can spend eight years doing that. Oh, he's yeah. spilling stuff on the yeah. pages. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Chapter three's gone. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, yeah, but it does take a while. You know, you often have to put it away just, just because you've got other pressures. Mm-hmm. But. Of course. Do you find it horrendously hard to write that way? As you put, do you ever kind of have that moment of, man, those lucky sons of bitches who just get to write and that's they wake up and that's their job? That's... Um, or not really? Well, I love doing... Um, what I love about being a writer is it's like free um, license to explore anything you want. That's mm-hmm. what's great about writing, right? And you just be like, oh, yeah, that's for research, <laughs> right? So you can do anything. So of in course. that way, I like the idea of doing many things. Um, and what I've noticed is that 
doing many things also makes you um, uh, it makes you be more disciplined. Mm -hmm. um, so usually when I'm in that writing stage where I'm like, oh, and I'm really knocking out a draft, I know it's usually a couple hours every night after work. But, yeah. But I'm ready to do it at that point. That's cool. That, that's a healthy way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes it just frustrates the living fuck out of me <laughs> to be just there and, uh, you know, it's like, great, I have two hours to write. And then, you know, you get into the, because it usually takes about an hour and a half just to start getting into the flow. And then you're like, oh, yeah, shit, now it's time to cut. <laughs> but you're like, okay, tomorrow I start again. He's like, no, the next time I have time, let me take a look. It's going to be nine days from today. <laughs> and it's like, you never get to have a flow. So right. it's... But the last one uh, that I wrote, the one that's coming out in December, I heard it's all super short chapters. They are like two to four pages. That way, there's not that much of a flow that I need to get that one right. thing in and I can move on to the next one because I never get to have a flow where yeah. I can write for days in a row. Yeah, and maybe flow is overrated. No, but you know, it's like because sometimes when you get back. First, you have to force yourself in front of the computer. You have to force yourself to cancel all the distraction. That takes a titanic effort of the wheel already. And then, you know, you start getting into the groove. And once you get into the groove, it's a little easier mm -hmm. because otherwise the next time is again start again yeah. with titanic effort of the wheel to get yourself. That. It's like, so you're doing all the hard work without mm -hmm. getting the cool part because, <laughs> you know, that's by inertia. You, you just know, keep starting and starting exactly. and starting. <laughs> so you're like, hey, I'm so glad I got six sentences out. That was fun. <laughs> and see you next week. You know, it's... It's rough. Oh, it's true. uh but that's awesome that you were able to do it without bitching as much as I do and <laughs> on a part time basis and yet being happy about it. Mm -hmm. So good for you. Thank I you. mildly hate you, but oh. that's <laughs> definitely No 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 no. I got my moments too. But I do have a neat trick and this is not just for writing but for any type of problem solving. Do tell. Ask the question, the thing that's bothering you right before you go to sleep and hmm. then go to sleep. And your subconscious does a lot of knitting behind the scenes. And not that it always works, but for some reason, it seems to like sort itself out the next day. You know, I'm intrigued because there actually have been times when I didn't do it on, I didn't plan it, mm -hmm. but it kind of worked that way. Mm -hmm. There was one book that I had to write, the 50 things you're not supposed to know religion thing that I was doing at a time when I had no time whatsoever for anything. And by now the deadline was coming up. I had to turn it in and I had no time, you know, mm -hmm. so I didn't have even the option to say, I'm going to now force myself. It's like, well, I'm back when Isabella was tiny and I would just feed her milk. I would be literally typing with one end while I'm giving her milk with the other. And I have to think. So there were times when um, time is running out and I would go to sleep thinking of, okay, what's the next story I need to look at? And I would look at it. I would look at it. I'm like, okay, now off, go to sleep. I would mm. pass out the next second because I was so exhausted. And half of the time I would start dreaming of sentences and some of them I would remember the next day. Mm. And I would be like, okay, head start. Let's go. You know, <laughs> and I was, I was always in the flow that way. I never had that moment of I'm starting something. I was always in that, even though I wasn't writing all the time, far from it, there was a sense of flow in that. So Interesting. I See? dig that. Mm -hmm. So go to sleep. Well, the, ob the possible counterpoint is that you start thinking about this thing and now you can never sleep again because <laughs> you're obsessed with, how do I get around that thing? And you know, you start beating yourself up with... There is that, yes. So drink a lot, mm -hmm. ask yourself the question, then you'll pass out, 
and then uh, the pray that the answers. muse will stop by and help exactly. you out. Exactly. That's right. Gently whisper in your ears <laughs> while you sleep, caress you, and you wake up with the answers. I dig it. <laughs> I like that. Um, theme of the book. I mean, again, it's kind of the obvious element of you, weird, multicultural lady, writing about an Armenian story from a male viewpoint. Mm-hmm. That's fiction right there in an interesting kind <laughs> of way because, you know, you got a lot of the people who write, about, especially when it's about ethnic stuff. It, there's always this idea that the only legitimate voice is the one that mirrors the characters. So if you are mm-hmm. writing about American Indian stuff, you need to be American Indian. If you're writing about African-American culture, you need to be black. If you're writing about, you know, there's all that sense of uh, clearly that's not the route you went. Um any problems running into with these uh, responses from people, controversy? I guess se- let's separate the two. One is your own process, whether how, fa- how much you found it rewarding versus difficult. And then the other one is the response from other people. Okay. So the first question is, okay, how do you write in the voice of this much older character. The mm-hmm. main character is 83 years old. He's a musician at the end of his life. I'm not giving anything away by saying that. Um, I'm not giving away the secret by saying that. Because <laughs> um, the title, by the way, is The Musician's <laughs> Secret. So. Right? Um, so, um, and, and in a culture that's not my own. Mm-hmm. Well, I've, I have, you know, in a, in a way it is my own culture sure. in the sense that I've married into it. Uh, but also, it's uh, as an observer, um, and it—it's weird. I never chose these things um, in, in terms of like, oh, you know, I should write about a, a duduk player who's an old guy, and I got to write from his perspective. It, it doesn't usually, you know, it, those those types of um, decisions aren't something that you make knowingly. Mm-hmm. It's just that there's a story and. And there's no way to stop it from being told, right? There's this energy that's not your own. So you kind of, you know, start writing. And that's that's kind of how it came out. So that's a long roundabout way of um, saying that you don't choose what you write. Sometimes it just comes out because there's a story to be told. And, um, you know, uh, the, what makes me an expert is that I know how to make up things. <laughs> that's it. That's my qualification. Right. Of course. I a true it. journalist. <laughs> hey, I didn't make up anything when I was a journalist, please. <laughs> so as far as your your end of the deal, that's what's going on. You know, you kind of were able to metamorph into this uh, old Armenian man and see mm-hmm. things from. Uh, as far as the reception, you know, needless to say, anytime you go into any closely knit ethnic community and you are an outsider mm-hmm. and in a work of fiction you're speaking with an insider voice mm-hmm. that already raises some um, eyebrows plus again we can't give away secrets of the book but there are some definitely some controversial aspects that pop up you are while for the most part is a very positive look at Armenian culture there are more than a couple of spots where you go oh there's that too Mm -hmm. or you know so there are things that don't flow smoothly and I I don't mean they flow smoothly perfect in the context of your fiction they may not flow smoothly on the receptive end from somebody who's like hardcore ultra nationalistic Armenian Mm -hmm. so how's that been going Hmm, how do I, hmm, okay, well, I'll first start by saying that um, 
my goal in writing the story is to tell something that's complex. Mm -hmm. So it's not one dimensional, which means, hey, we have to talk about all the good stuff, some of the bad stuff, some of the really ugly things, right? Mm -hmm. It's all part of what makes it realistic. So let's start by, I know that's the first thing I'll say. And um, of course, you know, I have lots of family members who are the spectrum of every form of Armenian life from those who are, you know, um, casual Armenians, <laughs> which just means right. that they're not really, you know, super into the culture or whatever, to those that are very, casual very... Armenian, I think <laughs> right. yeah. uh, To those that are, you know, everything they do, their friends are Armenian, every aspect of life is governed by a cer- the certain rules, right. the community rules. I'm never leaving Glendale. <laughs> That's right. I Basically. can get everything. Right. I can get everything here. Um, so um, it was funny, by the way. I went to the bank the other day in Glendale, uh-huh. and I'm looking at the name tag, and it's like every damn name is like IN at the end or YAN. One of those is like that's right. It was freaking <laughs> hilarious. It is a large, yeah. uh, large population. I I love it. Um, it's you know it's my adopted home. Sure. Um, but that didn't that doesn't mean that the book had a great reception even within my family. Mm-hmm. So my father-in-law Melkon's father read it but with the ca- with major caveats like you know Melkon actually spilled the secret up front and there were a few like <gasps> gasps oh, okay oh, okay fine all right now right. I can and so he read it and he loved the book. Okay. So um and then there are their distant relatives who were very upset by it. Uh, and then and there are people who are in between. So, which I think then in that case, I've done my job. Right. right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and in, uh, basically, my goal is to tell a story, to entertain people, and to explore a theme that's important, I think, not just to me, but to a lot of people. Because uh, when, when I think of um, the main character, Rupin, who is the musician, he's 83 years old, like I said, at the end of his life, um, his goal still is to be seen for who he really is. And if that comes from someone who might be his worst enemy, then so be it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it slowly transpires throughout the book until eventually yeah. hits you over the head. Exactly. And I wonder if the secret was such a secret. It wasn't when I wrote it, but right. then people were, I didn't mean it to be a secret. It starts getting clearer as yeah. it goes by, and yeah, then sure. eventually, you know, it's... Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, again, uh, can't really go into it, but it's mm-hmm. controversial, that's for sure. Right, that's... and it's, uh, when I, I don't think the book is even about the secret, right? No, it's no, not. exactly. It's something else going on, and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of it is, the, a lot of it is the culture, and the mm-hmm. interaction among the characters, and the little daily rituals they go through. There's a lot of Glendale, there's a lot of Armenian culture, there's a lot of food, there's a lot of music, there's a lot of, you know, mm-hmm. things you can kind of taste through the book. Mm-hmm. in that way and and what i love about very old cultures like the armenian culture is that so much of the prehistory still stays with us today right mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes we don't know why we say or do the things we do they've just been handed down for so long and i love to discover what it is or you know why we do the things we do why we do the things we do <laughs> because that's the way we've always done it and we're not changing now that's right yeah. you know i just realized your complete non sequitur sorry but i just realized that you are the second woman who's indian but spent chunk a part of her life in uh, africa that come on the podcast 
Wow. It's like, what the hell are the odds? It's very specific. You are guest list. Yeah, because <laughs> Casilda, a Chris Ryan wife, yeah. she's Indian, mm-hmm. but she spent, I don't know if she grew up there, like she, she was born or, but yeah, she's basically born in Africa. and everything. So it's like, talk about a trip. Mm-hmm. That's, wow, that's trippy. Mm-hmm. What are the odds? That is weird. Um, we'll have to introduce you. The, um, a couple of things about... Armenian history and Armenian culture for people who have no idea because again for us it's a little easier because we're surrounded by it you know in parts of LA there's a ton of it uh, many people around the world many people around other parts of US hell many people around other parts of California may have no idea of what any of these were talking about and you know they may get if they read your book maybe after 10 pages they start picturing you know my big fat Greek wedding kind of <laughs> scenario or something along those lines that's the closest that they can mm-hmm. probably come up with but the one of the big stories about um that has influenced Armenian culture and life in huge way is the whole thing of the genocide and the genocide not being recognized. Mm-hmm. Uh can you fill in some of the people who may have no idea what we're talking about? Yeah. What the whole story is, what's the controversy to this day? So the Armenian genocide which took place um between um nineteen um probably even as early as 1912 all the way to 1915 16 um really the um early part of world war 1 uh is the first genocide of the of modern times and the term genocide was coined for the armenian genocide um and it's the it's the killing mass killing of a, a group of people of a certain ethnicity and um when hitler um fashioned his own pogrom basically mm-hmm. he looked at the armenians and he said eh, no one remembers them um and you know that was an inspiration for him and um so it basically it's at the end of the ottoman empire mm-hmm. um you have um a nation or a nation um uh, an empire that's trying to hold very hard onto what's left and you have these revolutionary um um, younger uh, tr- uh, Turks coming into um, I- into power, and that's why they're actually called the Young Turks. Mm-hmm. And Armenians in the beginning actually think, wow, this is great. Okay, there's going to be some change. And they actually support their killers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, they, um, you know, they uh, sponsor parties, they do whatever, they raise money, um, but they don't understand till later, or they do, it doesn't come to light till later that this is actually um, a group of people who want the area to be ethnically Turkish. Mm-hmm. So, but there was, it's not just that. What There are other pressures because in what's happening in um, like um, Bulgaria or in that area, or it wasn't Bulgaria then, um, is that the Muslims there are, the, or the people who follow Islam, they are being um, chased away into uh, into to where the Armenians live. So you actually need to get rid of the Armenians in order to give... To these... make room for... That's right. So there was kind of a... In Bulgaria at this point was what, Catholic? Um, yes, I think it did have something to do with um, so, a changing of the guard, but I cannot remember what it is. Was, yeah, it's like I get lost as well. But, yeah. but basically, so there was the need of like, hey, we need to make some room here within the Ottoman Empire. Right. Let's get rid of these damn Armenians and that's put... Right. Make, Right, and so that's the the new group that was supposed to kind of help out. They didn't quite send the memo out to the Armenians, say, actually, we are planning to wipe you out, Mm -hmm. but that's essentially what ended up happening. Yeah, so you just have... um, And, of course, it's it's in a period of time where you don't have... um, uh, you're just starting to get photography, like good photography. You don't, you know, it's it's really easy to hide 
mm-hmm. big killings. And part of what's um, what I think was interesting and and you know unfortunately conducive was that you could um, you could drive people out into the Syrian desert, actually um, Al Raqqa, all those places that now are taken over by ISIS. Um, you could drive. Um, groups of Armenians out there and kill them and no one would know. Mm-hmm. So you basically starve them. You know, you just push people aw- away into the desert and then no one knows that you're doing this. And it's in the comfort of World War One, basically. So, right. you know, you have lots of stuff happening, you know, then it's very easy to hide these sort of To things. make it disappear behind a few dunes and it's all done and over with. So is genocide less as in, you know, the image you can get a la Hitler style gas, cha- gas chambers and stuff is mm-hmm. more like... Uh, trail of tears to the power of a hundred thousand type of thing where it's just a lot more and even worse Mm -hmm. but similar dynamics of like we don't outright well that happens as well but it's not necessarily uh being shot in the head all the time a lot of it is through lack of food through pushing you in conditions where you're gonna die even so nobody may pull the trigger on you there's that as well of course yes so what they did was they separated the men and the women so women children um, old people into the desert Mm -hmm. and all the men were they had many of them had been conscripted into the um into the um army Mm -hmm. um but then into unarmed battalions so they yes they're so so they couldn't defend themselves um and so then you know it was just mass graves you know people were shot and... go off against those <laughs> machine guns and yes, uh, exactly. you know you know, say hi to them when you get there yeah so it, were know, they killed by like meaning sentence kind of suicide mission against the enemy or were they just once they showed up with no weapons they were the yeah the were, ottoman armies dealt with them yes exactly they were um killed in mass graves any and all really mm-hmm. um um but what I think, you know, you hear all these terrible things and, you know, I, the, I remember asking Melkone, hey, what's, what's the worst thing about um, the genocide? And, you know, mm-hmm. it's like a weird question to ask, right? It's like 100 years later now. And, but I wanted to know, like, what is it that's so upsetting? Because, you know, I, I don't mean that. I don't mean it like, hey, what is it so, that's so upsetting? Come on, it's just a genocide. <laughs> Get over it. Over the time, man. Right. I, know, I don't mean it like that. More yeah. like, what is it? And so, you know, it, it took him a long time to answer. Like, it was really quiet. And I thought, oh, shoot, he's not going to answer. And, well, God, maybe I shouldn't have asked this question. And he said, it's all the missing people. Like, the, the, the people that you would normally know. Oh, that was great uncle so-and-so. They're, that whole group is not there. And so, and I thought, wow, for an, and I guess it was striking for me because my own heritage, I'm um, St. Thomas Christian, so small Christian population mm-hmm. in, a, in a large country that's not. Um, and, you know, our, our families have been Christian since 52 AD. So it's very, Jesus. very, yeah, very old culture. Um, so, but I can trace my roots back um, 600, 700 years mm-hmm. uh, because we keep very good records. But here, although there were, the records were there, you know, the re- that whole generation had disappeared so that right. the young kids who were three, four, five no longer knew where they came from. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, wow. That's enormous for an old um, population. Of course. Not big time. Do the Armenians have any reaction to seeing what's happening with the Kurds right now? Because it seems like the same old trick is getting fired up. The Kurds and the Armenians have a... Oh, the Kurds and the Turkish. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So this is interesting. So how the Armenians feel about the Kurds in general is that they helped during the genocide to to kill Armenians, um, so you know it's a colored sort of sure. feeling, right? Yeah. Um, but I'll, I will say that many people on both sides of my um, 
husband's family. They were saved by their um, Turkish um, neighbors and mm -hmm. people hid them. You know, they, they put their own lives at risk. So that's why I find it so interesting that, you know, the, it's never one thing, right? No, because it's not that easy. It's not no. like all the Turks were there right. out to kill you and all the Armenians were all sweet and nice. It's just it's right. never that simple, even never. in a case where it is pretty black and white, as in mm -hmm. when one group is committing genocide against another. Right it's pretty clear who the victims are at the same time it gets more complicated than that when again you do have because uh, you know obviously the reaction is then oh the Turks suck when <laughs> the reality is obviously a lot more complicated than that and there are exceptions to the rule on a wide scale obviously mm -hmm. so it's it gets complicated but that obviously historical that got to be swept under the rug that's why one of the recurring thing in the book that like cracked me up because it's not just in the book you read it in a lot of other within Armenian culture it's like anybody somebody somebody does something that you don't approve of you know it's like the grandkid doesn't finish their food and you're like what you don't eat your food you want to make the Turks happy you know it's everything is about <laughs> Yes. Exactly. Whatever you do, just don't make the Turks happy, That's right? right. It's, it is a recurring theme. Yeah. So on one end, you have that, which mm -hmm. is, you know, the bad, evil Turks. And then you have also the reality that there is no such thing as the Turks, because mm -hmm. obviously there are Turkish people who did help Armenians at the time. There are Turkish people who were horrible. You know, mm -hmm. there's, there's everything and it's opposite under one roof. You never have everybody from one nation supporting a particular government policy and nobody opposes it. It's always a little messier than that. Yeah, and so in The Musician's Secret, um, it isn't about those big themes of good mm -hmm. and bad. It's really about our individual relationships with each other. Right. Um, and that's what I always say when, you know, someone comes with this very um, ultra-nationalistic, sure. hey, I can't believe you went there. And I just say, look, it's not really about that. Yeah. It's it's about us and how we act with each other. And it's more the place where it's interesting is where just there's that complexity, where mm -hmm. the lines cross a little bit. And it's never a story of uh, the good, name whatever ethnic group, versus the bad, name whatever other ethnic group. is a lot more complicated than that when it comes to identity, when it comes to a lot of things. Mm -hmm. But I guess as a historical side note on to wrap up what you were saying historically is the fact that now there's still all this debate about the Turkish genocide being the unrecognized genocide is that, you know, you go around and you ask most historians, most anybody, everybody would agree, yeah, there was a genocide, but we can't really say it. Yeah. Because part of it is a political issue, right? Right. The, yes, the Armenian genocide. Um, yes, I think it's getting harder, though. You know, when here in L.A., when we saw the 100 year and 130,000 people showing up for the march, mm -hmm. um, it gets a lot harder. And sometimes, you know, there are those that say, hey, that those genocide numbers were, you know, they were exaggerated. But you ask every single person and there is someone missing from their families. Right. So that adds up. Sure. <laughs> it's, and again, it, the whole, the genocide was exaggerated. It's always one of the scenes that's ridiculous, regardless of which genocide you're talking about. Because yeah. it's like, who the fuck cares whether you're talking about a million people or one million people? You're right. still talking about a lot of people. You know yes. what I mean? Or it's like, if you're talking about a few hundred thousand or a couple of hundred thousand less. Right. Once you start doing those numbers, once it's more than 10, that's <laughs> a lot of people, you know. It's, so it's, it gets silly in some way. It's, mm -hmm. uh, and part of it is because because the Turkey became one of the few states that was in semi-decent relations with the West, 
and actually friendly to the United States, then it became very hard for Western powers to recognize something that would deeply piss off Turkey. And so especially in the context of the Cold War, where Turkey was uh, definitely closer to the United States than to the Soviet Union, it became a tricky business to, you know, you don't say something that will offend Turkey, plain Mm -hmm. and simple, right? You want to hear something really creepy but interesting? Do cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so after World War One, these young Turks, um, these leaders are they basically um, disappear. There, some are in Turkey, some are in Europe, um, and they were all assassinated hmm. by the Armenians one by one. Really? So mm-hmm. there was a whole Armenian hit list on yeah. the young Turks. And for a while, there was a a, a group of militant Armenians who did assassinate many Turkish leaders, right. and, like ambassadors and the like, even here in Los Angeles in 1982, mm-hmm. right on the uh, in Westwood, the um, the consul was driving home and two young Armenians. Pop, pop, pop. Mm-hmm. Wow. But, it, but um, that, that's uh, simmered down. <laughs> that's a hell of a story. If you yeah. find any good uh, history on that. Yes, I foresee a historical podcast on that. <laughs> That's just a badass story. It's really interesting. The Armenian Revenge, mm-hmm. I see. Well, We're very patient. Yeah, exactly. It's like 60 years later, still, wow. Mm-hmm. The um, One thing that's interesting, I guess, is I never put the dots together when we had Jank um, Yogar on the podcast and... Uh, you know his origin is obviously Turkish, and uh, and his uh, he launched the most successful uh, internet new can we say internet news media yeah, type exactly of thing. Yeah, yeah, that's mm-hmm. you know, and he calls it the Young Turks. Mm-hmm. And you know, I never thought anything of it because again, I wasn't quite up to speed on my history regarding the Young Turks and everything else. And and actually, Albert, somebody else that we had on the podcast, Albert Ohanian, was like. What the fuck? The Young Turks? Really? What the hell is this guy doing? You know, it's like, and I was pretty confused because I'm like, wait, 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 Cenk is like this super progressive guy. Something didn't add up because, you know, he does not, he clearly doesn't strike me as the guy who would be like, yeah, the Young Turks from back in 1915. And at the same time, he's a guy who is not, you know, a damas who doesn't know about history. And uh, particularly, you know, his own history, particularly when you pick the next. So I'm confused. I need to I need to track Jenk down and say what what the hot's up with the whole story. And then it's even funny because one of the people working for him was like one of the main people is Anna Kasparian, who's Armenian. Mm-hmm. So it's clearly it's a total mindfuck that I didn't quite fully understand. And I'm sure there must be some excellent answer that I never picked up on. But you're saying um, our mics are keep on dying on us so we had to stop and restart again a few times during one of the breaks you said that, that you know the young turk is one of those common expressions they use in the english language mm-hmm, even yes. like not associated necessarily with the story behind it yeah so exactly so young turks are usually the uh, rabble rousing people that are you know fresh energy that come in right so yeah i can see how that would play out better than the actual history <laughs> of some people saying genocide day let's have fun yeah i can see how that would be so I'm hoping that's the meaning. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that would be a considerably better meaning. There was um, it was a pretty funny line at one point that I jotted down when you were making a general remark about Arbidius that I thought it was hilarious, both for the way it was written and because it perfectly captured my experience with Armenian culture. As a group, it is my opinion that Armenians have a strong sense of nuance when it comes to rules. <laughs> 
the cleverness and can-do spirit of our criminals is almost a matter of pride. <laughs> okay, so that phrase got me into a lot of trouble. Really? Yes. Um, because there is a, there is a cross-section of Armenian culture who that you know they're trying to maintain a certain identity like mm -hmm. hey we are proper we're you know sure. you know we're lovers of the arts we're you know we're good citizens good neighbors and why does it why do you always have to pick up on the bad stuff we do and my and my point is every culture has weird stuff right. you know it's like you know I don't even consider it bad as <laughs> a matter of fact I agree with the pride aspect yeah, it's exactly. uh, there's uh, it's kind of like it is not. I mean, it's not just the Armenians. There are a bunch of groups that a whole lot of my it became almost a running joke at Santa Monica College. A ton of students were um, uh, Iranians who had fled Iran at the time when the uh, the Shah got kicked out and all of that. And there was a while, the culture changed. By the way, it's funny how it changes by generations. There mm -hmm. was a while when just about ninety percent of my Persian students were like the most hilarious rule breakers ever <laughs> like they would just work the system in yes. every possible way to a point where it was like so prevalent they're like right. okay got to be part of the culture because it's not <laughs> by chance that you 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 you're all doing that and it's like but you know it, even that is even funnier because it's not just the iranians it's not just the armenians is is also in the u.s it's it's a starker contrast because uh a lot of American culture has been uh, the attitudes about rules is very different. Mm -hmm. um, I would notice, yeah. like, I remember being a student where not just the Iranians, not just the Armenians, but literally everybody who was from a foreign country <laughs> cheating on an exam was the norm. <laughs> like, of course you cheat. It's like, this motherfucker is going to give me, you know, it's like, I need to work my game to get the best possible because I need the grades to get to this other place. So this is not about learning. I mean, yeah, if I learn along the way, that's great. But the point is, I still need to. So everyone you had, the Ethiopian sitting next to you, the Italian, the Armenian, they're all like cheating their asses <laughs> off. And then you had all the American born people who were all like, oh, <gasps> cheating oh my god you cannot cheat his school is your honor is where's your sense of and all the foreign bars would look at them like what the fuck are these guys even talking about he's like how are you gonna get ahead yeah 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 it's just not shit when i grew up in italy literally like if somebody if during an exam you ask somebody else to help you out to pass you their answers and they don't Right, they're the jerks. The whole class ostracized the best. Look at that asshole. I can't <laughs> believe that guy didn't help you cheat. What an asshole, my God. What a shitty person, man. That's just bad people, you know. <laughs> That's how it's seen, right? And here is the exact opposite. Yeah. So I guess for my own background, I greatly sympathize with creative rule breaking because, mm -hmm. and it, it's not always good. Some yeah. people do it in an asshole kind of way, but also there's a way that is like, that's just the norm. That's just how you do things. It's like, and, oh, what's that rule there for? What's the point of right, it? Right, it makes right, right. No exactly. So in some cases, you know, right. some people break rules and they are assholes. Other people break rules and they are awesome. I like the way they break <laughs> rules. And it's uh, so the cleverness and can do spirits of our criminals is almost a matter of pride. Is a statement I would definitely subscribe to because it's. <laughs> But yeah, I can see how anybody who's trying to put the legitimate face of, look, right. we are good, hard working, may not be too thrilled to right. be. It's kind of like if somebody make, after the 
30 zillion mafia movies some italian americans are all pissed off i think he's hilarious but you know a lot of those guys don't see it that way and there's plenty of great upstanding people in the book too right of course everybody's in there yeah 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 big time so now that it's done are you ready for a new one Oh, wow. You know, well, I'm just, you know, waiting to just, I'm just rolling in the dough from the first one. Oh, of course. <laughs> the crazy money that one makes you know with writing, writing fiction. Yes, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Oh, man, it's like the easiest path to just, you know. Of course. Fabulous. Living. Reaches and uh, yeah, that's how it works. <laughs> uh, but you know how writers are, you can't stop, right? You just, something happens and it just makes you want to explore a theme and write about it. Yep. So. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, if you don't write for fun, right. don't bother. It's because, something you don't retire from. No. And I mean, you can, if you str- but you have the equal odds of winning the lottery. So it's kind <laughs> of like, sure, it can happen <laughs> that you sell a gazillion copy and suddenly right. you actually make a living out of it. Mm-hmm. But realistically, the odds that anybody make money with writing, real money that they can rely on from one year to the next... <laughs> Good luck. You know, that's just not happening. Right. So it's really about, you know, it's the, the thing you want to explore and that it's usually if you want to know about something, someone else does too. So mm-hmm. it's the theme is always universal. Yeah. But ultimately, I, I agree, in that sense, I really think that the process itself and there's really just as long as you finish your damn book and at the end you look back and say, man, that was mm-hmm. awesome. I'm glad I did it. Right. That's a success right there. Right. If your mom reads it, oh my God, we are <laughs> just, that's a super win. Hey, your mom did read it. Exactly. <laughs> and, and if anybody beyond, well, not just my mom specifically, but so yeah, the measure of success is if my mom, Daniele Polelli's mom, read your book, then you know you made it. That's exactly. how. Exactly. No, but you know, it's like at that point, because otherwise it becomes one of those games that when you write, it's uh, how many. How many digits do I have to see there? How many people need to have read it before I can pat myself on the back and say it's a success? It is contrived, you right? Know? Like it, you're... It's made up. Right. It's yeah. made up. Of course, you want as many people to read it as possible. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you wouldn't write. You know, you want to expand it. You want to put it out there. Mm-hmm. But also the reality is, who cares whether it has been read by a certain... It's kind of like the same thing as the genocide discussion. You know, when you mm-hmm. get into certain numbers, does it really matter whether you add uh, 5,000 people more or less? You know, mm-hmm. the point is the same. It's uh, out of the 7 billion people in the world, you're still talking about a minuscule fraction anyway. Mm-hmm. So is it really that if you pass that threshold, you're a success, and if you don't, you're an asshole? It's like, come on. You do it primarily for yourself, for your friends, Anything beyond that, it's gravy, you mm-hmm. know. And you know what was interesting about writing this book was I was really interested to to explore or to to really examine people where you have this specter of genocide, mm-hmm. you know, that um and it's but it's like a hundred years old. And yep. it's still today it affects the community. Yep. You just cannot get over something like that. Let me, Absolutely. That's the that you know, which just makes sense, but it colors everything it about does. you. Don't make whatever you do. Don't make the Turks happy. <laughs> That's right. I have to ask you before we go uh, something that has nothing to do with anything. Has nothing to do with booze. Has nothing to do with writing. Has nothing to do with Armenian stuff. It's. Uh, but I remember I was having the discussion with my mom, and she was telling me about some of your strange proclivities. So I have oh, to dear. ask. Yeah, this oh, is my. awesome. It was a discussion about cannibalism. Not that oh. you have bodies in the freezer <laughs> or anything, but we were having this discussion, and she was saying, "Yeah, 
I was chatting with Lydia. She was saying now, you know, in a case of a Mad Max zombie apocalypse thing, she would just be down to eating anybody. Well, no, um, you know, I, I prefer a marbled human. You know, nothing stringy. Right. Um, and, and, you know, Carpaccio, like, I'll keep the person alive. Oh, it'll Jesus. Just that's... thin layers. Oh, my God. It'll grow back. You are so <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, gosh. Rich yeah. and I are hiding under, a, we're bringing up our chairs and use them as uh, weapons to defend our Self against this strange. I'm drinking it. That's what the I, That's right. It's, yeah, that's how she gets you. The liquor is just to you know, just to marinate. Right. <laughs> that's what it was. Certain herbs and spices is to exactly. tenderize the meat. That's right. I see. I've got a knife in my purse. Well, on that glorious, I have a knife right here. We can have a knife <laughs> fight right now. Let's have. Yeah, that's what could possibly go wrong. We got booze. We got knives. And a cannibal. Yeah, life is going to be great. Let's see. <laughs> yeah, so if by any chance you don't get any more episodes of The Drunken Taoist, you know why. It's because Litty just cooked me and ate me. But um, on that glorious note, anything else you want to throw out there? So you mentioned, I mean, the websites, I'm going to put them in the episode notes. Um, um, no, just... Um, I. So I'm so grateful when people do contact me and people who don't have any exposure to the culture. Mm -hmm. And one of the emails I, I got was, hey, I, I didn't understand a lot of little things in the book, but I love the story. Mm -hmm. And it resonated to someone who had nothing to do with this world, but could understand that the theme of just wanting to be recognized or to be accepted for who you really are. I'm stupid, so I don't get themes, but I really dug the the language the way it was written <laughs> the musicality of oh, it all thank you so, so much. that was a different angle oh, on no i dig it cool well thank you so much Litty. thank you guys so much for having me of course Fantastic. How about that, everybody? She was... We could have talked for another two hours. Yeah, that was great. And, um, you know, we proved the point. We are not against female guests. Not at all. No, she's awesome. Number that was five. Great. Yep, indeed. A uh, couple of things. So, first, on the big announcements end, in case you missed previous episodes, me mentioning it... This is a little weird as usual because I'm recording for in the past, so I'm assuming that certain things have happened in the next month and I'm hoping they have. If not, they are hopefully coming up soon. But the gig is there should be out there by now, when you're hearing this episode, there should be a second podcast that I want to run named History on Fire. So check out for History on Fire podcast. The whole idea is very Dan Carlin-esque, except with an accent. And, and with uh, his blessing. Yeah, indeed, with the blessings of Godfather Dan. So, again, I'm not going to say too much right now, just because I have no idea what I've already said in other episodes, if the actual everything went through and we are up and running and episode one is on or not. So um, there's a kind of a shot in the dark right now announcing it a month earlier. But bottom line, please check it out. History on Fire. It should be out. Um, iTunes, please subscribe. I've worked on this like a dog. The last year and a half to two years, I've read, I don't know, let, let me count here, right? Realistically, 80 books, 60 to 80, somewhere in there. Yeah, 
easy because actually I read about 10 books per episode and I have eight episodes researched already. So And do you take the morsels out and put them in the themes or to yeah. issues? Yeah, and the then... whole process is beyond brutal because it's like you read the eight, six, 10, 12, 14 books per episode depending on which episode it is. Take all the notes and same time I end up with like 25 pages single spaced on one book. Then you compare and contrast all the books from the same on the same topic. Then you put it together in a cohesive narrative, cutting stuff and pasting of what makes sense. Then you develop it in your own style, so you're not just relying on this stuff. So each episode is writing a book, basically. And um, so, yeah, I, that's why, you know, I keep saying it and saying it and it hadn't happened in a long time. Well, because it took a long fucking time, but it should be out now. Please check it out. Please subscribe. Please get your goldfish grandma, anything that has an iTunes account to subscribe. I need the numbers. I need the love. Please help me out. Having said that, other things. Um, I may have mentioned it in previous episode. I did put up there um, on a website a downloadable version of um, instructional martial art DVD that I had done two or three years ago. And it was a pain in the ass because nobody used DVDs anymore. So it was kind of a little difficult on DVD. This is easy. It's just straight up download. So if you dig it, there are a few clips on YouTube. You can check it out. If you dig it, you want a whole hour and 40 some minutes out of it. It's, uh, I'll put the link in the episode notes, but in any case, it's HTTPS. Uh, the last, let me see, what's the site itself? It's leglocks.vhx.tv. Again, leglocks, as in doing bad things to lower limbs, .vhx.tv. If you are a grappler, if you're a martial artist, check it out. Million thanks if you do use our Amazon link. That's always appreciated. And uh, what else do we need to throw out there? Our t-shirts, of course. You guys know the drill. If you want to order any of our awesome, brilliant t-shirts, they are up there. That was lecture series. Something else that's out there. Quick thank you to Audible that decided to actually not just semi-sponsor in an affiliate way but they actually did sponsor an episode not so long ago mm-hmm. so big thank you to them if you guys ever want to check out audible and get a book a month for as long as you give them your money they will deliver they are pretty awesome in that Coracao chocolate if uh, you dig sweet uh, well sweet not always but it's definitely good chocolate high quality uh, in some cases, very sweet. In some cases, not so much. It's as more this earthy kind of chocolatey vibe, but Coracao chocolate. And uh, thank you to Desi House Music for the music. What else? Donations, because we're doing back-to-back episodes. We got nothing now, even though I'm sure some of you guys have been very sweet to us in the meantime. Anything else we need to throw out there? That sounds like it. Beautiful. That's a wrap. You guys have a good day. And so ends another awesome episode of the Drunken Taoist Podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as soon as they come out. You can keep track of Daniel at dbolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at RichieMon1. 
That's R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N, the numeral one. See you all soon. In questo caso, in questo caso, le provvidenze di Dio. Duncan showed you the way, eh? Oh man, isn't that scary to think? Nice. So don't kill people, do that instead. <laughs> this was great, fucking awesome. And I love this conversation. Did you ever see the movie Tombstone with uh, Val Kilmer and. Uh, uh, your accent, it just. Whatever that movie is you were trying to tell can me. Can you about, translate for me, please? I believe the word was Tombstone. Yeah, that one, exactly. <laughs> Just as I was saying, you know, Tombstone. <laughs> what do I have to do? One day the rod shall teach you. Get back to work.